I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. W-A-L-T. It's The Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Neumann U87 today via the Avitas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. Welcome to the show, my friends. And the reason... After all my recent song and dance about the Electro Voice RE20 that I'm coming to you on the 87 today is an exciting one. I'm excited about it. I hope you will be too. I have a new show out today. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago in one of these intros, I am very honored to be the host of the brand new Wondery slash Meadowlark Media slash Campside Media podcast, Sports Explains the World. And uh, the microphone explanation is that uh, this is the microphone that I use to record the narration for those episodes. And I was just interviewed uh, for the TV, not to be whatever, but I'm excited. I'm excited. I started podcasting 15 years ago. I'm going to say that again. 15 years ago on a USB microphone and a dream. And I was just interviewed by the local NBC Universal affiliate in Boston <laughs> for a segment called What to Listen to and talked about Sports Explains the World. And I don't know, man, it, it's just been such a fantastic honor to get to collaborate with this big team of seasoned Reporters. I'm talking about people who have been in the game at, at prestigious magazines and sports television networks for decades. And they were all given the opportunity on this series, Sports Explains the World, to tell stories that have haunted them or that they could never find another outlet for in previously in their careers uh, or they're adapting stories that they did in print and going much deeper than they were able to there there's one in particular by a sports illustrated writer talking about um this guy who at the age of 25 pretended to be 17 so he could play high school basketball again and he does this unbelievably vulnerable interview with the guy not just that the the guy who faked his age is vulnerable, but the reporter himself is vulnerable. They talk about the nature of how journalists harvest people's stories for their own enrichment. Anyway, as you can hear, I'm very excited and passionate <laughs> about this series. And it is out today. You can listen to it. As of today, uh, August 23rd, I forgot what day it was for a second, you can listen to Sports Explains the World wherever you get your podcasts. There are two full-length episodes in the feed. The first one is called The Engineer, and uh, it's, about, <laughs> it's about this 16-year-old kid who, as a joke, updates this 
sort of little-known soccer player's Wikipedia page to suggest that he's on pace to be one of the greatest soccer players of all time. And this attracts the attention of the mainstream soccer press. And before he knows it, this little-known soccer player is getting these million-dollar offers to go play soccer professionally across the ocean. And it all it's all because of this 16-year-old kid with an internet connection who likes to pull pranks because he idolizes uh, this comedian who does those things. And in the episode, you hear this kid who has now grown up to be a very prestigious magazine journalist track down the soccer player who at whose expense he pulled this prank and reveal to the soccer player that he was the one behind this bogus Wikipedia page. And they talk about how it impacted this soccer player's life, which was a lot. I'm saying all of this because um, these are these are stories that that happen against the backdrop of sports, but that's not really a sports story. Right. That's a story about a young person who idolizes a comedian who pushes boundaries, trying to see how far he can push boundaries. And then later in life, reckoning with the fact that he didn't think about this other person's emotions in his attempt to do that and then trying to put that situation right. And it just happens to have a sports context to it. But one of the deeper questions I think that episode really asks is... Why do we celebrate precociousness amongst young people on athletic fields, uh, but comedic precociousness of the kind displayed by this journalist when he was a kid makes us nervous? We, we get a little icked out by it. The second episode in the feed is the first of a two-parter. It is a reinvestigation and reconsideration of the story of Spider Savage, who was an Olympic downhill skier who was killed under very mysterious circumstances. And for decades, that's really all anybody's known about him. Nobody ever really took the time to dig into his actual life and try to figure out what he was about. Um, His life has just been reduced to this murder mystery that periodically gets repurposed for cheap basic cable filler content, um, you know, like Scandal in the Mountains. And... In our story, we we really do the work that nobody else has ever done. I shouldn't say we. A really wonderful reporter named Gloria Liu does the work to get to the bottom of who this guy really was and what the factors were that might have led him to have a target on him in the first place. And along the way, she uncovers all kinds of surprises and scandals uh, that have never been reported about this person who has notionally been reported on for decades. I am flying off the handle at the mouth here, and I know that uh, none of this has to do with the midnight disease, except that I am the host of Sports Explains the World also. (laughs) And I just want to say, I've always wanted to be a storyteller. And I've done that in a bunch of other contexts. And this is, for me personally, the most high-profile context that I've been able to do it in, and I would be lying if I didn't tell you I am petrified about (laughs) whether the show is going to be received well, whether it's going to be sportsy enough for the sports folks or narrative enough for the story folks that we hope will form a coalition of people who listen and amplify um, the series. And yes, this is me asking you, begging you directly 
to, if nothing else, go subscribe to Sports Explains the World wherever you're listening to this and maybe throw it a little review just as a favor to your old pal Sammy, <laughs> even if you don't want to listen. But but please do listen uh, because I just would venture to say that if you like anything else that I've ever done, whether it's Family Ghosts or The Rumor or The Midnight Disease, all of those shows in some form are about compulsion, obsession, and coping with the vast mystery of being a person in the maelstrom. And that is, I promise I'm not just trying to make a square peg fit in a round hole. That is what Sports Explains the World is about. It is about people who dream of a life that looks different than the life they are in, and they fixate on a solution that they conceive of. And these solutions happen to be sports-related. But that doesn't mean you have to understand the sport in question to clock the urgency of that fixation. We have all of us decided that something, whether it's a relationship or a novel or Star Trek or whitewater kayaking, can help us find the answer to the eternal riddle. We've all done that. And what's exciting to me about Sports Explains the World is it's just stories about people doing that. And it's not just the subjects of the stories, it's also the stories of the reporters. And all of the reporters in this series have a personal connection to the stories that they're telling, and they share that connection with us. There's no fake editorial detachment from the obsessiveness and compulsiveness that is driving the subjects of these narratives. And I think it's really special. And the other thing that I want to say is that on Sports Explains the World, we're doing something that is not happening enough in podcasting right now, which is through the generosity of Meadowlark and Campside and Wondery, the producing organizations of this show, we were able to give professional reporters, professional producers, professional sound designers, and professional musicians the resources and the time to report out stories and then write scripts and then have those scripts edited and then re-edited and then produced to pristine professional caliber. And vanishingly few audio organizations are doing that anymore. It was huge for a minute, and now everybody is pulling back on the purse strings, even though those are exactly the kind of stories that we know people love to hear. And so these three companies are really rolling the dice here and trying to do it the right way. And not only did they do that, but they did it, I can't remember if I said this already, 45 times. There are 45 episodes in this series. That means it's going to run for a year. It's basically going to come out every week like This American Life does or any of your other favorite nonfiction storytelling shows. It has been a Herculean effort, of which I am only one very small part. And so it's a special moment, not just for me personally, but dare I say it's a big swing for the world of work that I care about so deeply. 
And if any of this mess I have just spilled into the U87 at you is resonant, I hope you will search for Sports Explains the World in your podcast player, give it a follow, give it a review, and enjoy some really top-shelf storytelling by some extraordinarily talented people. Thank you. Now, what about this show, which I also love and treasure so very much and appreciate you all listening to? This show features a fantastic guest today, Ronald Young Jr. Ronald Young Jr. has just released a podcast that has the potential to change the world. Now, I'm saying that just genuinely from my own experience of listening to it. I'm not reading copy that Ronald gave me. I'm just telling you that listening to this show was a revelation. It's called Wait For It. And that is Wait spelled W-E-I-G-H-T. And it is a multi-part series from Ronald and Radiotopia that tells the story of the thing we maybe are most scared to talk about as a culture, wait. And Ronald tells the story from the perspective of a person of size who has been struggling with all of the stigmas and expectations and psychological volcanoes that accompany being a person of size. He's been struggling with that for as long as he can remember. And I don't know what your own journey with weight has been, but you've been on one. You have been compelled by our culture to think about your weight and the value that it imparts onto you as a person. That is something that I will venture to say. It's true of all of us. Even if it hasn't been your primary fixation, You've had to think about it, and you've had to wrestle with it. And for people of size, that experience is a nightmare. I have been a person of size at various points in my life, and Ronald, in the very first episode of Wait For It, articulates something about that experience that I had never heard anybody say before, and it's this, that when you're a big person— and in particular, when you're a big kid, six, seven, eight years old, you are imprinted instantly before you've had a chance to think about what you're generally passionate about as a human being, before you've had a chance to think about what your dreams are, before you've had a chance to think about how you want to show up in the world, you are branded as a big person. You are branded as somebody whose weight is an instant strike one against you. It's the first thing people comment on about you. It is the first thing people react to about you, usually with laughter and derision. And that seed once planted is almost impossible to excavate. And in my own life, something that I think about all the time, that I talk about in therapy all the time, 
is my compulsion to enter every single interaction that I have from a place of low status. To have my fundamental assumption be, these people are not going to like me, so how do I behave in a way that makes them think I'm on their side, on their team, think they're cool, and am down to play by their rules so that they will overcome this initial dislike of me and maybe I will get to have friendship and connection and love. And the reason that I enter every interaction that way is because I was a fat kid. And people used to make fun of me for being a fat kid. And so my initial experience of connection was that it was not available to me because I was fat. And my entire simonizing, sometimes grating, sometimes thirsty, sometimes cloying personality, my desperation at various points in my life to be the funniest person in a space, uh, because I think that will make up for the fact that no one wants to look at me otherwise. All of that was weight-driven. All of that came from body shame. It affected the way that I dress. I still can't go out in public wearing just a t-shirt without getting aches in my neck and shoulders from holding my body in awkward ways. It made me stay in loveless romantic relationships for longer than was healthy for me or the person that I was in those relationships with because I genuinely thought I would never find another person who wanted to share love with me. I'm not saying all of this to make anybody feel sorry for me. I'm saying it because Ronald's show helped me realize all of this, that, that this is at the core of my lived experience and that it is at the core of the lived experience for so many people, regardless of what size you are. As I said, you have had to contend with this metric that we have applied to our validity and value as people. And it should not be that way. And Ronald is going there. He is being brave and sharing his own journey with this and using that journey as a lens to explore weight in a broader cultural and political context that is, and I want to be clear about this, not overly serious, not just blatant outrage and demonization, not some kind of political screed. It is tender, personal, thoughtful, empathetic, and rooted in the reality of experience. And I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to Ronald about this work. Again, the show is called Wait For It. But, and this is important to know, it is not Ronald's first podcast. He has a number of other podcasts, including one called Leaving the Theater, where he tells you about movies that he's just seen, literally, as he's leaving the theater, which is really fun to listen to. And there's another show that he made for a long time called Time Well Spent. And that was a kind of exercise in personal journalism where Ronald would tell stories from his own life and then interview people from his life who intersected with those stories. And there's one really amazing episode of it that I want to draw your attention to because it became a framework for a lot of our discussion here. The episode is called 
Bypass. And it's a two-part episode in which Ronald tells a story about a secret he kept from his parents for 16 years and then records himself revealing that secret to his parents. And we hear on tape the entire family wrestling with the implications of this revelation. And just at the most lizard brain level, it is so fun to listen to that happen because we always love listening to things that it feels like we're not supposed to hear, right? But it also does this other thing where it interrogates the very act of personal storytelling as a vessel for self-discovery and a way of reporting on social and societal pressures. And the fact that that type of reporting sometimes necessitates betraying the trust of the people that we love the most, because sometimes we make a decision that the story matters more, and it's uncomfortable to think about that, but it is real. And that is the level of reality and ambition that thrums in the storytelling of Ronald Young Jr. So for all these reasons and more, I was thrilled to sit down with Ronald, and I take you now to our conversation on WALT. funny because my midnight disease actually happens in the morning okay okay <laughs> so uh i'm not a night owl i do um in the throes of my creativity are around uh 8 9 a.m in the morning okay and for me that's uh a cup of coffee um i just finished playing piano i, I like to practice a little bit every day about 10 minutes and then um i jump into writing Typically, I have something that I need to be writing, whether mm -hmm. it's an introduction to leaving the theater, whether it's an episode of Wait For It, like there's, there's something that I should be working on. I like to do that in the morning because I feel like that's when I'm at my sharpest. This is really interesting to me to hear because one of the things I'm, I'm most excited to talk to you about is the intros to your projects, uh, specifically Time Well Spent and Wait For It, um, <laughs> because you have this ability in your intros it, for me to my ear you do this thing where you sort of start in the middle of a thought and it's very arresting to listen to because i feel like you have just kind of effortlessly plugged me into the stream of thoughts that are running through your head and just to be specific i'm, I'm thinking in particular of in your time well spent episode where you reveal this long-held secret to your parents that you've been holding on to for 16 years. You open by saying something, I'm going to misquote you slightly, but you open it by saying something to the effect of, you know, I've been thinking a lot recently about the statute of limitations. And when, when, how did we come up with that? And where did we get this idea that, you know, guilt runs out? There's a clock that runs out. Um, and it really gets me in, I feel like I'm reading your journal with you as you're writing it down. So how did you come to that as a style? Is that something you think about consciously? 
I love analogies. You know, I was raised in the church mm-hmm. and Jesus spoke in parables. Right. So I loved that you'd be like, hey, Jesus, you hungry? And he'd be like, a fish <laughs> waded into the water. He'd be like, come on, Jesus, you want a sandwich or not, man? And, you know, next thing you know, you're about to be taught a lesson. <laughs> so there, there's something to be like from a family of preachers and uh, from being around church my whole life that just makes me understand that like using analogies is a good way to get into a story. But more importantly, I think like if, if I think about my own style, it's the fact that I'm an overthinker and mm. that as you think, thinking is editing. If you're thinking, you're also editing your thoughts yes. as you're thinking. I so agree. And like uh-huh. they're, they're, they're continuing to distill down, distill down, distill down. And I think what sounds like me being in the middle of a thought, it's just what has the distilled down from the many thoughts that I'm thinking. The introductions are kind of like a distillation of uh, a bigger thought down mm-hmm. to something small that creates an entry point for the listener to come in. Yeah. You have this amazing, I think, ability to say to me as a listener, okay, um, th- this is a story notionally about me going to get a couch. But it is actually a story about me grasping for control in a moment in my life when I felt like I was out of control. And I'm going to tell you that up front. And then I'm also going to tell you how I arrived at that conclusion. And you do that um, also in the first episode of Wait For It. So do you feel like coming up in the church, or would you attribute coming up in the church to that? compulsion that I have a sense of you having to look for like the message behind the action? The short answer is yes. The short answer is yes. Okay. okay. The longer answer is when it comes to my work, I'm not always trying to uh, convey a message as much as I'm I'm trying to convey my feelings and vulnerabilities. And I think that especially Mm. with podcasting and the way I've done stuff is it's, it's been made, it's been a lot easier for me to articulate the way that I feel uh, in a way that's already pre-edited and ready to go for people to just kind of consume. And that kind of starts like that could start a conversation. Um, When it comes to like learning lessons, I actually am, and am less inclined these days to assume that everything has a lesson. Hmm. And I, and the reason why I know that is because I think that some things are reactions and the results of actions from years and past years ago that look nonsensical to us today. Um, take for instance, I just saw the movie Oppenheimer. Okay. Uh, and you think about the fact that we're in the nuclear age. Well, there's things that happened back then, the Cold War, then every country starting to develop nukes. Um, and there's all these things that happened at the time where if you were there seeing it happen, you could connect them all back to Oppenheimer. Well, now we're at a place where something happening in front of us, we might not directly connect that back to Oppenheimer. We not, might not look back and say, like, the reason why this happened is because we dropped two bombs in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff that's still connected that way. I said all that to say... It, Sometimes in front of me, I have to look at something and say, whatever's happening in front of me has nothing to do with me. This is not a lesson specifically Mm. for Ronald. I think it's selfish to think it is, but also have the nuance and discernment and the ability to know when something is a lesson for me. Like, oh, this one's for me. This one is something (laughs) I'm supposed to be learning from. And I think that's the true 
thing, if you will. That's what I, really what I want. I don't want to look for lessons in everything because I think that's lazy. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think the idea of just going out there and being like, the world is constantly teaching us. I'm like, yes, but every lesson is not for you. Like, what are you talking about? That's selfish. Yeah. I think that that is a beautiful and generous sentiment. But it is also interesting to me to hear, given your impulse to tell your own stories. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and to use your own life as a map for stitching together threads of lived experience, particularly in Wait For It, right? You're talking as much about your own lived experience of dealing with weight as you are about the broader cultural environment in which weight is discussed. So you are learning your own lessons, even as you are also educating us about the broader context in which those lessons are taking place. So where do you think, I guess, the question would be, or how do you fit those things together, I suppose? That that awareness that you have that you're not the center of the universe, just as none of us is the center of the universe, but that also your own stories could be helpful (laughs) uh, to all of us in making sense of all this. So since I was a kid, I was always a person that asked a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. um, whether it be in Bible study, where it be in class, at school, any of that stuff. And I remember when when I was much younger, I would ask questions so to impress the teacher, mm-hmm, to be like, mm-hmm. ooh, look, I'm listening, that type of thing. And you get that that validation where the teacher's like, ooh, good question. Oh my goodness. But then as I got older, I realized like the the uh compulsion to ask questions normally just came out of pure curiosity. And I found that the act of asking a question was relatable to the people that I was sitting with because they're like, I was just I literally was just wondering the same thing. And then I became addicted to that. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. I, I started to think, well, if I have this question, surely someone else in this room has the same question. Uh-huh. So I'm just gonna ask it. And I take it upon myself to be the one to ask that question. So when I think about like lessons from my own life, I'm I'm looking at it in the same way. I'm saying if I've experienced this, or if I feel this way about this, surely there's someone else that also feels this way. And I feel like it's the only way that we can like collectively learn a lesson of progressive society is if we start like realizing that all of us were given an individual puzzle piece. <laughs> and the only way we're going to see the entire picture is by putting all the pieces together. Yeah. And I don't know what pieces you have until I say, here are the pieces I have. And you're like, oh, I've been looking for a corner piece this whole time. Come over here. Let's connect. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I wasn't planning to go here yet, but but since you've brought it up, this is like kind of a, a perfect segue. Um, you did that for me, the, the exact thing you're describing. <laughs> you, you did that for me in the first episode of Wait For oh, It. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, because uh, I, I am somebody who has struggled with weight and body image my entire life. Um, I have weighed 100 more pounds than I do now, and I have weighed, you know, dozens of pounds less than I do now. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that cycle is not complete. And the thing that you articulated in that first episode that I have never heard anybody else say is my entire personality has developed in relationship to my self-perception around my body. It's where it, it's why I am who I am. It's why I show up in the world the way that I do. And I guess one big thing I want to say to you is just thank you for expressing <laughs> that. 
You don't have to thank me, but <laughs> that's fine. I appreciate you saying that. I've never heard anybody else say it so plainly and, and clearly. And it makes me think of the other thing that comes up in the first episode of the show, which is you, your friend tells you like, oh, you're a deep talk friend. Like you're the type of friend who's going to, to the point you were just making, ask interesting questions, really try to look for um, points of connection in a conversation that other people might be thinking about, but not necessarily have the confidence to say. So I guess, do you draw a connection between that curiosity that you have, that desire to be a vessel for connection and curiosity for those around you. Do you make a connection between that and this idea of developing a certain kind of relatable personality as a kind of apology for your physical presence? Well, the the personality development is something that kind of just happens uh, over time. You know, it's something that it's a reaction to how you're being treated. And I think I would argue that the people that are never going to have this type of epiphany are people that are really, really, really conventionally attractive Mm -hmm. and really, really, really conventionally shaped. They're never going to. And I know this because I have a friend. His name is Greg, who uh, he is fit and in shape. He was an ex-football player, takes care of himself real thin. And the way he talks, when we used to compare notes on talking to women, he would give the worst advice because (laughs) there's nothing required of Greg in order to talk to a woman. Like he walks into a room and they're already looking at him and admiring him, whatever. And so I was like, I was like, yo, man, I'm gonna talk to a girl. He's like, I don't know, man, just get in there and just, she'll see you, talk to her and just go. And I'm like, that's, you're giving, and it took me years to realize that this is bad advice. Yeah. Like from someone who does not understand what it's like to have to to go talk to a person mm-hmm. and display your personality. So I would say like the personality development is kind of like a reaction to the environment and everyone does it. When it comes to showing up with, for people and being like question asker, all of that, it's not always connected because a lot of that stuff is, I think the best way I can explain it is by saying LeBron James is very confident in himself when it comes to basketball. You know what I mean? It's just like he, like he doesn't have to be humble about basketball. He's like, if we're talking about basketball, we're good. But I kind of feel the same way when it comes to like, you know, being good at question asking, mm-hmm. stepping up front, that type of thing for my friends, like, or, and for people, even for strangers, that's not something that I feel like I have to ask anyone's permission to be. And I don't have to be humble about, and it doesn't feel like armor. If anything, it feels more like skill. And I will say that the ways in which I've seen other fat people, uh, be kind of rejected or lampooned by society mm-hmm. has always kind of it's one it's always been there since i was a child it's always been there the idea of like being fat is a bad thing like Mm -hmm. how dare you be fat i always feel like it's the reason why i am the way i am is because i feel like a lot of ways i i faced rejection uh especially romantic rejection and i feel like for a lot of men that means that they become incels and i thank god that that wasn't the path for me it (laughs) just i got very anxious and self-conscious and it went in a different direction which was fine Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, it's very interesting that you bring up the, the incel thing. Not that you and I are going to solve the incel issue on this podcast. We can't. Um, we can't. And I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, something I, that has always stuck out for me, I guess, um, in reading an article about the incel, I don't even know what to call it, movement phenomenon. And this is now probably almost 10 years out of date, but it was this thing that a lot of these guys 
in addition to saying all kinds of hateful, awful bullshit on the internet, they were also looking up things like jawline surgery and, you know, certain types of medical treatments that might give them a more traditionally desirable body. And I I just couldn't help thinking in those moments, like, I mean, I feel like what they really need is a male friend who's unlike your, your friend who played football to say like, buddy, just try this shirt. Yeah. I mean, I think more than that, they, I mean, the, the systems of oppression. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Sam, we're at the systems of oppression part of the podcast. Minute 24. (laughs) An an all time record. (laughs) I'm into it. I'm into it. Please continue. But like the systems of oppression that like, there's a book by a, a, a person named Deshaun Harrison. Uh, they use they, them pronouns. And they wrote this book called The Belly of the Beast. And one thing they discuss in that book is the idea of how they use the words beauty, ugly, insecurity, both using capitalizing the word and and uh, and lowercasing the word, hmm. meaning that the capital version of the word is the construct of beauty, the construct of insecurity, the construct of ugly, meaning that there are people who are in, w- confined within the construct of ugly who will never reach the construct of beauty because of the ways in which we've shaped these oppressive systems, mm-hmm. which means those same incels that are struggling with what they look like and as a result are lashing out against the world for being undesirable are victims of the same system that oppresses women, that oppresses queer folks, that oppresses that it is this othering of a certain type of people and an othering, especially of the idea of intersectionality, because it's basically saying because you you're you're saying that I don't feel like a full member of society because I don't have a the right jaw because I can't grow my beard mm-hmm. because I'm bald, I'm getting bald you know what I mean like because I have really really thick glasses mm-hmm. whatever that is I am not receiving all the benefits that I could be in society and as a result uh, women don't like me and instead of examining the structures that define what beautiful is and that is the enemy instead of looking at those structures. You instead look at the symptoms of those structures, which is desire, which is another word that's capitalized or uncapitalized, mm-hmm. which is the structure of desire and say, what does that actually uh, look like? It's like, well, I expect that I'm going to be attracted to this person because they have six pack abs, uh, a good haircut and they're, you know, in shape, whatever, you know what I mean? But like no one's ever examining that. So I, I think there's something to be said about the fact that no one is looking at the systems of oppression or or the structural ways in which we're categorized and that is killing all of us yeah all of us yeah and acknowledging that it is i think categorically so much harder to be a woman in our world than it is to be a man yeah something that your episode also made me think about is that you know you talked about various body positivity social media accounts that you follow where women post pictures of themselves, like really, you know, seeming at least on the social media account to sit in self-reverence and pride in in their size. As you said that, I was very hard-pressed to think of a male version of that. And and that there is this thing, and, and I'm, I'm about to speak from a very uninformed place, but there is this thing, I feel like, in the culture where... When we see women of size strut their stuff or, or like be really 
filled with appropriate pride at the fact that, like, all bodies are beautiful, there is, thankfully, these days, a sizable contingent of energy in the culture that says, like, yes, good. We love to see this. Thank you for for doing this. This is not just pushing back against something negative. This is actual beauty. This is actual sexiness. This is true confidence. And a lot of times for men, I think it's like, we're still kind of stuck with Chris Farley. <laughs> you know, like we're still kind of su- stuck with like, you can be, you can be a, a big guy, but you have to be a buffoon for us to like you. I think that for every big man that is that is represented in society as acceptable one they are there is something else that is mm-hmm. allowing them to be acceptable mm-hmm. in society and for chris farley it was that he was very funny mm-hmm. he was very very funny uh and he had very little shame in a lot of ways but he was very very funny yeah. uh john candy very very funny mm-hmm. um you could go through a list of them even if you think about a rapper like biggie smalls mm-hmm. Very, very uh, talented, very good. <laughs> Just an ex- extremely good rapper. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like even Rick Ross, very good rapper. He sold the lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. did a good job mm-hmm. of that. Like it's, it's men are allotted uh, other ways to be accepted mm-hmm. into the confines of desirability because of these uh, other factors. Now, I will say that from what I've seen in my own experience, the way that that works against me and the way that that works against people uh, who look like me is that if you are an untalented fat person, if you are an mm-hmm. unskilled fat person, if you are not a tall uh, fat person, and I'm talking specifically about men, there's just a certain way in which you are treated by society that is different from people that we would call the exception to the rule. That being said, the same thing is happening with women at a, a much more compounded rate because mm-hmm. the shape of a woman determines what type of influence she's going to be and how she's being uh, accepted by society. Mm -hmm. If you are a woman who is hourglass shaped, even you're plus size, you are apt to receive more attention. You're Mm -hmm. apt to receive more brand deals. Even if you think about the very first plus size influencer, which I think for a lot of people was Ashley Graham, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a lot of people, she was the first plus size person that people saw on Sports Illustrated. All of that. Uh, One of the first plus size people that was kind of celebrated in society. And I'm sure there were others, but this was probably one that was culturally significant. It, It marks an inflection point, I will say. She is different in size from someone like Tess Holliday. These are two people who are shaped very differently. Mm-hmm. Ashley Graham is a model's height. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so she just looks like a model, but bigger than a model. Whereas Tess Holliday, I believe, is 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And much wider than uh, Ashley Graham. And I think while they both have enormous followings, the reaction to both of them is going to be entirely different, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think... To some degree, the idea of being accepted into like the capital D uh, uh, arena of desirability mm-hmm. has to do with you still meeting certain benchmarks. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also making me realize that something ignorant about what I said earlier, perhaps, is even if we see a big woman being very presentational about her body and we celebrate that, we are still judging her value based on her physical appearance. 
In some ways, yes, but I feel like, but also at some point we have to look at the systems of oppression and say, or the uh, the structures that keep us kind of bound and say like, why is it even important that we're celebrating this? And and the truth is it's important that we're celebrating this because we've denigrated uh, other body types for so long. We've denigrated them for so, 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 so very long. That's like, we got to celebrate this one. But the truth is if we fixed the actual system, Right. We would not have to worry about a celebration of bodies in order to everyone make them feel like they're worthy. Plenty more to come with Ronald Young Jr. right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. So much of the question of weight is how people are seen. And you're doing this in a medium where you're talking about what it feels like to be seen a certain way without being seen. And I wonder, is that something that you thought about as you put the project together? Is it something that you feel like freed you up to talk about things maybe in a way that you couldn't have otherwise? No, I didn't think about this at all until you just said it. As a matter of fact, I'm like, that's genius. I wish I would have been intentionally thinking about the fact that people can't see me while I'm talking about how I've seen. Right, right, uh, right. That's, that's incredible, actually. <laughs> like uh, Now, I mean, we're going to have to scrub this interview from the face of the earth because now I'm going to be like, I'm stealing that. And yes, <laughs> I did this intentionally uh, for this reason. Feel free no, to take it. Feel free to take it. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I, 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 But no, I really didn't think about it. I, I, I definitely... Now I realize how powerful that can be because as people get to know me, they're now getting to know my voice and how I think mm-hmm. long before they ever see me, even though my picture is in the logo. Yeah. But like you, you get to know me long before you actually see me, which I think is, that is pretty powerful mm-hmm. to say like, oh, well now I'm already going to know this person. It's very love is blind. If you think about yeah, it, yeah. you know, it's very much like, oh, I fell in love with this person. Then you see them and you're like, womp, 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 womp. like, but in this case, I'm tackling all the things that that they're basically saying, these are the ways in which the world sees me. This is what people think about me. This is all of that. And I'm kind of challenging the listener to kind of like think about their own ways in which they view folks and view the world and, and how they interact with the world. And what I think is important about that is to say that after you've done all this meeting Ronald, if you sympathize with Ronald after listening to a podcast, like wait for it, your chances are, odds are like statistically, you're probably not going to meet Ronald specifically in real life, but you might meet other people who are like Ronald. Mm -hmm. How are you going to treat those people? How are you going to treat like the fat person at the coffee shop that you see or the fat person in the doctor's office or the fat person at your church, at your job, at the park, walking a dog, like whatever. How are you going to treat those those folks now and how are you going to think about them and the way that they're interacting with the world because of you know this work that I've, I've i've kind of been working on so like it just feels like um 
like I said, I don't think it's the answer. And I mm-hmm. appreciate you saying it's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, but I still think the onus comes on the listeners to say, yeah. how are we like, what am I going to do to be different starting tomorrow? And how am I going to like stand up for, for fat folks and help tear down these structures? Yeah. Well, so something that I think is encoded in what you're describing also is that to talk about this is kind of unexpectedly transgressive. Um, Like you say, and again, I hope I'm not misquoting you, but I think you say in the episode, you know, that you're, and you maybe even said earlier in our conversation today that um, you were raised with people saying like, you know, you can be anything you want to be, but, but don't be fat. That it's like, in, in some ways, it's like the one thing that we're still like, no, that's a that's like a death sentence. That's a curse. That's a whatever. So there is a transgressiveness in talking about these issues in a frank um, and very personal way. And that is very interesting to me and notable to me in the context of the episode of Time Well Spent that we were alluding to earlier in the conversation, which has to do so much with growing up with very strict parents who, and I know you have a a good relationship with your parents, but I do also have the sense that there was a way in which they made you feel like there are some things you want to do, there are some ways you want to show up in the world that you cannot, that we forbid you to do. And I wonder if you make a connection for yourself between wanting to be publicly transgressive, talk about things that are verboten and being raised that way. I think I, I I mean, for me, this is all the art of vulnerable storytelling Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. you got to tell the truth and shame the devil. Mm. And that's, you know, another phrase I grew up with, with, with saying, Mm -hmm. and the truth is that like, in some cases, the culprit was the organized structure of the church. Mm -hmm. Like that was the one that was causing me pain or causing uh, pain to my experience generally. And, uh, the truth is it's sometimes, and I think it's okay to say, sometimes it is your parents, even great parents can mess up. Even great parents can say the wrong thing and, uh, and cause a complex in their child's life or whatever. And I think even with the best of intentions, apologies are necessary. It's, Mm -hmm. it's important to say the words, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done what I did. I'd do it differently if I had another opportunity and I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. like that, that could suck the poison out of people. So I think with the type of storytelling that I do, I do it in a way to suck the poison out to say like, Mm. let's name what the issue is. And if I can articulate what the issue is, then people who are responsible or have said or done the wrong thing, not to me, but generally, they can at least be aware of what the issue is and walk in an apology moving forward, saying like, I've done the wrong thing and now I'm going to do something totally uh, different in the future. So I think like, I mean, talking about it is like the, the only way that we get it out to the open. And I am privileged to be in a position to be able to talk about some of the things that I think and the ways in which, uh, like words and the, you know, the world generally has been hurtful mm-hmm. to me, to Ronald Young Jr. There are plenty of people who do not feel that freedom or do not have the ability to do that. And I think that's, that's worth acknowledging because those people We'll never get the opportunity to kind of like name what the issue is and receive an apology or some side of oh, some sort of healing for the trauma that they've endured. Yeah. Well, I guess, do you remember 
when you first like I'm tempted to say like tasted the the sweetness of sucking that poison out through personal storytelling because I have to say something that was just really rocked my world is I watched your story district performance about the where you tell the story of doing this thing that your parents explicitly forbid you to do and you go to like I'll just say like mission impossible lengths of subterfuge to do this thing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and which your mom later compares to o- Ocean's 11, which I think is great. Um Correct. <laughs> you you go to these great lengths to do it and you really revel in how much you had to do uh in order to evade their suspicion and how successful you were at it. And as I was watching, you know, having done a certain amount of personal storytelling on stage in my own life, I was thinking, I wonder if Ronald told his parents before he told this story, or I wonder if they were in the audience when he told this story. And then I listened to the Time Well Spent episode (laughs) and find out that your whole motivation, unless I'm mistaken, for telling them after 16 years about this betrayal of their trust is that Story District was going to publish the YouTube video (laughs) and you didn't want them to find out that way. So I take from that that it was more important to you to speak the truth about this experience than it was to, I'm not, this is more dramatic than I intended, but like to to maintain your parents' trust, maintain an open line of communication with them. So tell me about that. Actually, I'll take it a step further. It wasn't the YouTube video. It was, uh, it was, uh, my whole intention was to make an episode of time well spent. Mm. And I said, I saw that there on the calendar that there was a, um, a story district show coming up called one and done. Mm. And the one and done for me was sneaking out of the house. I did that one time and I would never do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll know that part of the story is I prayed to God, if you let me get away with this, I'll never do it again. Yeah. And it was, I was right. I never did it again. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and granted, I chose the right time to do it. So I would never have to do it again. Uh, <laughs> right. But with all of that being said, like I, I knew that was happening. So my whole thing was, I'm going to tell this story and then I'm going to tell my parents what happened. Uh, and it was twofold. One, I wanted to talk to them about it mm-hmm. because I mean, to this day, and we haven't talked about it since we had the conversation that was for time well spent, but to this day, I think my parents did the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I think my parents were like overly strict about specific things like that. And I think that wasn't in mine or their best interest. I think they were just afraid and didn't want uh, me and Marilyn, my sister, to do the the wrong thing, to be ending up doing the air quotes wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So... I I wanted to have a conversation with them because I wanted to kind of see where they stood, you know, mm-hmm. and to know that my mom says that she stands in the same place. I do not believe that for one second. <laughs> um, I, I think that she she says that to, to save face mm-hmm. from like from, you know, having made that decision. And it's like it sometimes it feels easier to double down because mm-hmm. uh, then you don't have to bear any responsibility. And it's it's tough to bear responsibility sometimes. And so I think for them, even if you listen to the reactions, it's very much like. How could you do something we told you not to do? That mm-hmm. type of thing. And I, I think my response to that was like, how could you regulate me out of going to prom? Right. A once in a lifetime event. <laughs> like, why would you? I don't understand. You're putting me in a situation where I don't get to make that decision. And that's, I feel like that's what having that conversation with them 
was about. So mm -hmm. the intention was to say, was to tell the story, tell everybody, hey, this crazy thing happened that's been a secret for years. Mm -hmm. Only specific people knew what was going on. Uh, and then the second part of that is to then say, like, I'd like to have this conversation with y'all about a decision that you made when I was a child. How often do you get the opportunity to, to do that with your parents? Mm -hmm. To say, like, hey... When I was a kid, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, uh, you made me wear overalls, and now I'm afraid of belt loops or something like that. You know what I mean? How often do you get the, the chance to actually have that conversation with your parents yeah. and have it on tape? So Yes. Well, if I may, how did you feel when – because the part of that whole exchange that really caught my breath is when your dad says, you know, uh, at first he's like, call your sister. We're going to work this out right now. And, and your mom says, as you described, like, I still stand by what I said back then. But then towards the end of the conversation, your dad says like, well, you know, we're very proud of you. And I mean, talk about, <laughs> I, I don't know if we have similar dads, but like to have on tape, your dad saying like, you have chosen to do something that is very different from my lived experience. And I'm proud of you for doing it. Um, I was very moved by that, and you got there through, as you've just described, this extremely uh, calculated, convoluted plan to reveal truth. Was that a, was that a resonant moment for you as well? Yeah, I mean, I think when we get to the point where my dad says he's proud, uh, like I, I knew he meant it. You know what I mean? Mm. And I knew. And I knew because my dad was like, I don't really care. Like, mm -hmm. like, and, the, and this part that you to get on tape, I was like, do y'all mind if I actually put this in the episode? My dad was like, I don't care. And my guess, I don't know. My dad is also saying, I don't even listen to podcasts. I wouldn't know how to download one. I don't care what anyone says about any of this. <laughs> See y'all later. I think what's more important to state is that this episode was adapted to uh, to television. Uh, it was adapted to an episode of a show called True Story with uh, Ed and Randall, which mm -hmm. is on Peacock. Mm -hmm. It's episode three, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. three or four, mm -hmm. one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think the important thing is to say is when my parents saw the episode, it all of a sudden clicked for them. You know what I mean? And when huh. I say that, they, they were just like, and, and it wasn't in the moment, but I could tell as they're smiling and looking at the episode and seeing me on television, they're just like, this isn't some embarrassing story where we're duped. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is actually like a, a chunk of Ronald's life that's important to him. Uh -huh. And now he's on television talking about it. And they actually did a good job. I'm, I Like, my parents are laughing. Everyone's having a good time. Like, this, wow, what a great thing that happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As opposed to them in the moment just being like, we were hoodwinked by our son who outmaneuvered us. Like, how could how could this happen <laughs> on our watch? You know what I mean? That That feels totally different. So I think for me, being able to see them like kind of see the vision of creativity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, because at one point, and this is cut from the, the podcast episode, my mom says, you snuck the prom <laughs> and now you're making a podcast episode about it. <laughs> and now it's probably going to become a movie and we're going to be the dumb parents that just saw this whole thing happen. And sure enough, it comes a, a television show. My mom was kind of prophetic yeah. in, that, in that moment. Yeah. But the good thing about it is like, I mean, the good thing about it is she enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. uh, and when she thinks about it now, she thinks about the ways in which that I'm doing a good job out in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a good job being creative, making things. And it also gave me validation that like the ideas that I ha have are, are, uh, are pretty good. So to answer your question, which was, did it resonate? Yes, it did resonate. <laughs> and I'm, I'm also happy that my parents um, are, are more on board now than they were when they first learned of all this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, just to name, I don't even necessarily know what to make of this in this moment, but the, 
what you just shared that it took them seeing it on a screen to have it kind of land sort of undercuts yeah. our earlier premise about the power of audio to to talk yeah. about these these issues so um a different issue different issue yeah different yeah. issue different issue yeah. um there's another story that you tell this is in wait for it that i wanted to ask you a little more about and it's the story about you describe a moment when you were dating somebody and you're sitting outside and you're eating potato chips and they got like stuck in your beard or something and you had this feeling like ugh i'm a mess right now and that your partner came over and she said to you you're a little bit of a mess right now and that it felt good if i understood correctly to be seen in that moment can can you expand on that a little bit more well it was uh the the moment wasn't necessarily her seeing me the moment was that she wiped the crumbs out of my beard wiped them off my shirt mm -hmm. and then she put her arm around me and gave me a kiss mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it just made me it made me feel loved and i think one of the uh the tough parts about doing a show like wait for it is uh, me recognizing how many times that waiting um, has cost me an opportunities to love and be loved. And there was a lot of ways in that relationship in particular. So in that moment, I was existing in an opportunity to be loved. And I mm. think truly that is a perfect moment and that's a and that's honestly the only parameters of a perfect moment that you need is when you feel like you are being loved in the moment that moment is perfect wow that is uh a beautiful sentiment um <laughs> i'm sorry that really uh that lands for me that lands for me um and it's interesting to hear you describe it that way because there was a moment from my own life that it made me think about, which is a time in my life when I weighed, as I was saying earlier, about 100 pounds more than I do now and was really working hard to show up in the world as um, a goofball because I thought that's what I needed to do to compensate. And I was in a relationship where, at the time, where... Um, my physical presentation was not being met with with that same level of warmth that you're describing in that story. But my girlfriend at the time had a friend who came to town and we all went out and we got a bunch of drinks and I was being very ridiculous at the bar. And she told my girlfriend told me later that her friend said to her like, oh, Sam is is great. He's just like this big, warm, ridiculous bear. And. I guess what I'm saying to you is you're, you're what, the way you just answered that question is remapping my memory of that experience in real time, which is why I'm not expressing it well. But um, it, it at that moment, I wanted to say to her, like, see, I have a lot to offer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's making me think that, like, what was really going on is that the friend was still just seeing the performance, not me actually being like present in the moment of myself, as myself, ready to receive. And I guess th the reason that what you just said lands in such a heavy way for me is that, I, like, I feel like, uh, to your point earlier, I'm still dealing with that challenge every day. That's something that I'm I'm navigating all the time. 
It's not easy, Sam. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I think recognizing a moment in which love is happening Mm -hmm. in which you are being loved Mm -hmm. is, I think uh, Ed Helms says it as Andy, Andy Bernard on The Office. Uh He says, uh, I wish that you could recognize the good old days while they're actually happening. Uh, I wish you could recognize that you're in the good old days when you're in the good old days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's almost impossible. I mean, it's asking us to be present in the moment. But a lot of times we look back on moments fondly and and we look back and say, oh, I want to live in this moment. But the truth is, things weren't all great with that mm-hmm. that particular partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like That moment feels good. And it feels good to think about that moment uh-huh. as an isolated bit of time. Um, and if you could be present in a moment in which you are feeling love, it can be something that fuels you for the future. But I imagine like, especially you, when you're thinking about like that isolated moment, it's like both at the time you're looking at it as an illustration of what deficiencies your then partner has. Uh, but you're also like, you're also going through a very complicated uh, filter in your mind mm-hmm. to say like, well, what was I? Was I performing in that moment? Mm-hmm. Who was I? Mm-hmm. But someone saw me and they appreciated the performance. But if they appreciated the performance, do they appreciate me? Or do they appreciate that it is a performance? Or do they appreciate that I have to perform? Right. You know what I mean? Which makes it even more um, complicated. I don't have an answer for you. Yeah, well, and to your point, like those are all questions that I wouldn't, I didn't have available to me then. And I'm not in touch with either of these people anymore. So I... Um, don't blame you. I don't think you should be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, not to pivot too hard. I don't actually think it's so much of a pivot, but I, um, I'm curious to ask you some technical questions about the way that you actualize the storytelling in Wait For It. We've talked a little bit already about the writing style and how I think of it as, and I mean this as a compliment, like it's like a curated stream of consciousness, your narration style. Um, it feels like you've you've you have somehow found a way to capture strands of thought that drift through your head as you reflect on these issues, and then it's like you picked the best strands and then said them exactly the way they go across your brain. That's very kind of you. Uh, before you even go further, I got a shout out to edit uh, to my editor, Sarah Dealey, mm-hmm. who is very good at turning brain dumps uh, <laughs> into into scripts where she's like, "I like this. I don't like this." This feels dumb, like that type of thing, uh, and turning that into uh, and helping me turn that into a script. So it's it's a labor of love. Well, can I ask you uh, then before before we go further, how did that process work? Did you kind of free write on these things and send it to her and have her identify the the sections that she thought were most promising? How how did that go? Well, no, for the first two episodes, we definitely had to do brain dumps because I had to learn how to write. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, I'd written for Time Well Spent. I didn't have an editor. It was just me. So mm-hmm. if you like Time Well Spent, bless you. When I was writing Wait For It, I knew the idea that I was trying to convey, but I didn't know how to get there sometimes. So what Sarah had me do was write these what we call brain dumps, mm-hmm. where I would just write everything about the whole feeling, like complicated warts and all. And she would just be like, I like this, don't like this, I like this, I don't like this. Uh-huh. And then I kind of was able to use that as kind of like um, the way forward to actually script out an episode. Mm-hmm. And now the way we're doing it is I'm, you know, I've been writing outlines. The brain dumps are no longer just long, like walls of text. It's just outlines. This is where I'm trying to go. Uh-huh. 
putting it out in three acts and saying like, this is where I'm trying to go. And it's made writing like in the show, like, and I'm further into the show now than I was when you got the first episode, I'm further in now. And it's made writing it much easier because I kind of know where I'm going in a way that I didn't, when I just started to say like, Oh, okay, I have an idea. You know, there's this influencer and I think this thing about the relationship Mm -hmm. that she's in, where is it? And I like, kind of like, just kind of like, you can't turn that into a podcast. Here's the thing though. There's over 3 million podcasts and there's lots of shows that exist that are what I just said. Yes. Just people just kind of like (laughs) spouting out an idea with no structure whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And those podcasts are very hard to listen to. Yes. So I didn't want to be that. Yeah. Well, that uh, segues to another one of my questions, actually, which is in I watched the, um, the TEDx talk that you gave. And you talk about how and I think it was 2012 you were. Uh, working at a radio station and that you were you were just like loving it um and then that job ended and you ended up having this accidental journey through the world of it um and that pod listening to podcasts during that time kind of brought you back to wanting to make audio again so there's two questions here one is if you think back to that 2012 moment we were working at the radio station what was it about being there that you loved and the second question is, what were the podcasts that brought you back to that route? Um, I I worked at, you know, you're from Alexandria, so I worked at local station Hot 99.5. Oh, my goodness. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which was, at the time was a clear channel station. It is now an iHeart station. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Throwback, right? Deep <laughs> uh, cuts. Yeah. So I, uh, I worked at Hot 99.5, and I loved it because... I bought into the dream that they sell on radio stations, radio stations and radio DJs in the, especially in the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, they really had you thinking they were having a great time yeah. in there. They were just, <laughs> man, I want to be there. They're having a good time. Oh, war of the roses is happening and all these like scams and pranks they're doing. And, so-and-so is wearing a dress and they're describing it on the air. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all there, there's just so many things that are happening uh, as a radio show goes on. And I bought into the dream of that. I also grew up listening to a show called Adventures in Odyssey from Focus on the Family, which is a problematic evangelical company <laughs> based in uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, one part of Colorado, Colorado Springs, uh-huh. uh, Colorado. So I don't endorse it now, but I did listen to it then. Gave me a big imagination. So when I was at the radio station, one, first I had to rip away the dream of what was happening in a radio station. A lot of the stuff that they were doing were lies and sketches. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Stuff that sounds good while you're driving to work and driving home. That's uh-huh. And that's good for that. But once I ripped that away, I realized the making of audio and the performing of audio is so fun. It's so fulfilling. You can do so many scapes in people's heads because their imagination is creating the vision that you don't have in audio. So once I started doing it and the first time I edited my first piece of tape and all that, I got really excited about like what I could do mm. in audio uh, as a result. So that's kind of like what I was doing when I was there and what I got excited about. Can I just pause for a moment? Because like wh- what you just said is so fascinating because you're, you're saying, one, you got there and the veil fell from your eyes. You realized that you had invested in an illusion. Mm-hmm. And maybe there was a moment of disappointment about that, but then that was quickly replaced by the exhilaration of thinking, I, I'm going to create the illusion. Correct. And, and that'll segue to the answer to your, your other question, okay. which was, okay. I'm now sitting at a support desk yeah. in, in 2012, 
I'm no longer at the radio station and I'm not invested in an illusion anymore, but I was listening to a lot of NPR. Mm-hmm. And I remember they had this terrible little NPR app in 2012 <laughs> that you could keep listening to your local public radio station yeah. on the internet. Mm-hmm. And so I would go into the building and I would listen. And then I realized they had this little section, this little terrible section for a couple of podcasts that they had. Mm-hmm. And the podcasts that I would listen to back then are Pop Culture Happy Hour, Snap Judgment, Radio Lab. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And I would listen to those shows every week as they came out. And eventually I discovered the Stitcher app and a whole world of podcasting began to open up to me. And the reason why I'm saying any of this is uh, is to say that in those moments when I'm sitting at the desk, I'm listening to Snap Judgment and they're, they're telling me these harrowing stories of climbing mountains and the time that they passed out like at work or whatever. They're telling me these stories and I'm imagining them, but it's no longer an illusion. You know what I mean? They're not They're not trying to sell me on having a good time. They're just painting a portrait of life from their mm-hmm. perspective. And that really showed me like how far audio can really go. Cause for a kid sitting on a support desk, like I would be excited to be handling tickets at work because I was about to listen to the new episode of the Ted radio hour yes. and listen to somebody tell me some crazy story about faith. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I do, I do that. I was, I, and I'd be so excited to be at work and to be able to listen to all this stuff at the time, this American life had 500 episodes mm-hmm. at the time. They have 800 now, yeah. but like 500 episodes at the time. And I remember I was like, I, I would get to work and be so excited. I'm like, I can listen to every single episode and I have nothing but time. I have eight hours a day. Yeah. So I'm listening to four, five, six episodes a day, just mm-hmm. getting through the entire catalog, just, mm-hmm. just burning back through it. So uh, yeah, This American Life, Snap Judgment, Pop Culture Happy Hour, Radio Lab. Those are the the institutions that live in my mind when it comes to like the, the type of audio that I want to create. Mm-hmm. That I, it's so interesting to hear you say that because I, I feel like I could very readily map those influences onto a lot of the work that you do now, which is uh, long form personal narrative with really beautiful sound design, which makes me think of Radiolab and Snap Judgment, as well as cultural commentary, um, which obviously makes me think of Pop Culture Happy Hour and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, I think maybe then what you just said sort of answers this question. But the other thing that really jumps out at me about wait for it from a technical standpoint is there is a persistent presence of musical scoring and sound design that goes along underneath the narration and the tape. And I think oftentimes when you listen to long-form narrative storytelling, or candidly, when you make long-form narrative storytelling, sometimes that stuff is just there because you're like, you want it to sound podcasty. You want it to sound like a radio show. But what I liked about it in Wait For It is that it felt of a piece with the idea that you are trying to join together disparate threads and experiences. You're looking for connective tissue between troubles and dilemmas that you have lived and real societal questions that we're all wrestling with. And the the music and the sound effects create like a fabric that that helps those ideas feel inherently connected. So that's the experience I had listening to it. I'm curious, what was it like for you doing the actual sound design work? Um, you know, 
I didn't do the sound design. Oh, <laughs> so okay. that, that makes it much easier. Uh, the back when I was in those days when I was listening to mm-hmm. uh, those podcasts, uh, that's when Gimlet first started coming on the scene. Yep. And of course, we all remember a time uh, pre serial and post serial, and mm-hmm. which is why I always felt like when the podcasting boom happened, it happened. It's kind of like showing up to your friend's house for like a LAN party, right? And you're just <laughs> you're over there, you're hanging out, you're playing video games or whatever. And then one day when you show up to your friend's house, a place that you always go, all of a sudden like. 80 people that you never met are in there like really curious yeah. about land parties and mm-hmm. they have no idea what they're doing. That was what it was like when Serial came out. <laughs> it was just like, do y'all not listen to This American Life? Right. This is like very normal This American Life stuff. Oh my so, God. Oh there's my a God. whole backlog. I'm saying all that to say like during when Gimlet comes on the scene, mm-hmm. Gimlet came out with a show called Reply All. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Reply All, there's several others. And Reverend John Delore used to oh. mix that mix that sh- mix that show yeah uh and and breakmaster cylinder yep would uh give the tracks so when i started time well spent the first person i reached out to was breakmaster cylinder mm-hmm. and i got he made me a theme song all that so i developed a relationship with him mm-hmm. and uh maybe about a year later i went to a place called third coast in chicago yep. and uh, a person who get it's a conference audio conference uh that used to be held in chicago and while i was there um a person who gave a presentation was the reverend john delore yeah. and i walked up to him and i said i love your work everything you do is great we uh, be- developed a colleague relationship developed uh talked on emails all that he even interviewed me for a job some years later it was <laughs> crazy uh later on um, I always wanted to work with him. I always wanted to do a project with him and the timing was just right for mm-hmm. wait for it. Mm-hmm. You know, he was looking for a project. I was looking for a sound designer and I was like, I'd love to work with you on this. And when he sent me the first mixed version of wait for it, I teared up. Mm. I was, I teared up. I, I just, because what I, I would have always, if I would have sound designed it, it would have just sounded like maybe a little bit better time well spent time well spent from mm-hmm. a guy who's been in audio a little bit longer uh-huh, uh-huh. but what he has been able to create has been like far and away better than i could have imagined this show it is the show of my dreams it is the show that i wanted it to be mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. as a result if i had more money whatever it is the result that i imagined it to be back when i first started podcasting yeah. where i'm like one day i want to make a show like this well fast forward six years I've made a show like this, and that's because of the sound design support from John Delore. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And do you think you could say for yourself what it is about what was already there in your writing and clip selection that felt like his design brought to the surface? You know, like, one thing that I've always enjoyed and I think I've been pretty good at is picking a good uh, uh, theme or a good um, clip for for music. Like I have music that I'm attracted to. Mm-hmm. And I think the good thing about the type of music that I like for podcasting is I like emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. I like stuff that's slow and contemplative. Contemplative? Contemplative, whatever. <laughs> I like stuff that makes you think. Yeah. And I think 
the time, which is why I always like, um, there's a theme on interstellar from Christopher Nolan by Hans Zimmer. That is just this, it's this, and people know it. If you've seen interstellar, it's just a sloop that goes do, 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 do. And it just goes over and over and it changes a little bit, but it's super minimal. Mm -hmm. Just this same little arpeggio, just going over and over and over and over again. And I love stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I write, uh, with stuff like that in my head mm. and it's very easy for John to plug into that because I think he understands uh, what I'm trying to go for when you get to episode two of wait for it there's a theme that I use up top um, and I believe the theme is called cloud seven from um, from breakmaster cylinder and I said to John I was like this is the theme I want to be attached when we talk about anytime we talk about shame in this episode, because the name of the episode is a shame spiral. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, uh, once you get to that episode, you'll hear it. it. It's just, it's in the beginning, then you'll hear it. It'll come up later and it just comes in real subtly. And I think that I love what scoring does to movies. I've loved like for one of the th best things about black Panther came out in 2018. Ludwig Gordon did that score. And I, remember at the time I watched that movie 10 times not exaggeration in theaters uh -huh, uh -huh. and I remember at the time recognizing that the triumphant the way that I feel all of that has to do with the scoring of this movie not just what I'm seeing but what I'm hearing and I think that is something that's so important in podcasting so I didn't want to skimp on it and I also uh I didn't want I wanted to make sure that what I was saying matched up with the vision moving forward and John Delore really understood that vision mm. I'm so glad we're talking about him because he is uh, it, like I, I will often turn to my fiance when we're driving and we turn on a new podcast. And like the second you hear the narration, I will say to her, John Delore mixed this like there's something about the way that he captures it's the mids and the low mids in yeah. in the voice that it it's like. It, it's it's like the image I always have is it's like the back of a dolphin like going into still water like it's <laughs> it's so smooth and yeah. I'm really excited to hear that in in your show he also did the actual musical scoring that's not even something I realized was part of his repertoire though it doesn't surprise me um, and I guess you know to kind of bring our conversation around full circle it's also so illustrative of the idea that what you are bringing to the collaboration is a piece of a larger puzzle and that the the sonic element that that he is contributing turns it into this thing that it it couldn't have been if it had not been for for either one of you i know we just have a couple minutes left and i guess the you were just talking about music and that makes me want to go back to one of the very first things you said which is that every morning you sit down and you play the piano for 10 minutes what do you think you get from that? What does that do for you as a way to begin your day? I mean, I hope it's stretching my brain mm -hmm. um, because it makes me think differently. And there's ways in which when you play any instrument, the more that you practice, the more that you become addicted to practice. And the more that you become addicted to practice, the more that you're likely you'll try to get over that obstacle that you just can't beat. Whether it's like the, the shape of your fingers, like trying to nail that one thing that you just have to keep playing over and over again. And there's something about the repetition and ritual of that that makes me feel good. And it's something I've started to look forward to uh, as a means of starting my work day uh, because it, it, you know, it just, it puts me in a, a different mood. Like the original reason why I started playing piano is because 
I've always decided that someday when I return to church in person that I want to play in the band. Mm. Like, I don't want to just be sitting out there like being a part of the congregation, but I also don't want to take a leadership role or any of that anymore. Like there's a lot of ways in which I believe that a lot of the things that are helpful about the structure of church is the ways in which we engage with the music and the culture of church. And I want to be a part of that. And I can't help but note a connection there between, you know, the idea of, we started our conversation talking about how you came up in the church and and this idea of parables and looking for meaning behind things. And then you talked about what you love in radio being participating in the creation of illusion. Not to say that what happens at church is an illusion, but the the expressive musical elements of it, you know, it's like you've you've gone on your walkabout and you've come back with this deeper understanding of, of what's really happening um, in those pews. So yeah, I agree. I like I like that. I like that. I'm going to steal that too. It's yours. It's yours. <laughs> Ronald Young Jr. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so grateful to you for your time. And um, the last question I, I always like to ask folks is, do you have a mantra, something that you repeat to yourself when the going gets tough? I have everything I need. Mm. That is a good mantra. That is a good mantra. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is great. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Ronald Young Jr. for joining me on the show today. You should listen to Wait For It. Wherever you are listening to this, that's Wait For It, W-E-I-G-H-T. And you can also check out all of Ronald's work at Oh It's Big Ron Studios. That's ohitsbigron.com. Oh, It's Big Ron is also his handle on Twitter, which I refuse to call X, and Instagram. And if you have thoughts on anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease, as always, please don't hesitate to reach out. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you then. And in the meantime, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.